Open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. If you do not have a Bible, if you raise your hand, we we'll always tell you we'll raise them really high. Kind of hard to see. Grab a Bible from us. It's page about 478 in a Bible that you get from us. Today is the last week of our study that's titled Faithful, Part 1, The Life of Joseph, Part 2, The Life of Daniel. Humanly, they've been our role models, but as we look at the idea of faithful, it's really been the faithfulness of God. I, I am uh, struck, and I was talking to Neil this morning, I'm struck as you look at Daniel 6, is where we'll be today, that, that really this, there's a certain repetitive nature to each of these studies. It's really about God's sovereignty, God's control, uh, his, his call in our lives, and then the faithfulness, Daniel, obviously the, the key character, but also his boys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the guys that are with him and to see how God has preserved them. The emphasis last week, and again, really throughout the book, but really now, as we see that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 and, and the demise of his kingdom, we see that come to pass. Uh, there's a, a lot of emphasis on the sovereignty of God in nations. Uh, in his commentary on this section, John MacArthur writes this, Nations are born, they live, and they die. They rise and they fall with great regularity. In fact, as you study history, you're more and more impressed with the fact that nations rapidly pass off the scene. We look back at the empire, the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, now the Babylonians. This is where we find Daniel. They're followed by the Persians and the Medes and the Greeks and the Romans. All of them came and went. And then I fast forward through his commentary, editing a bit. He said this, I see today across America, even around the world, a preoccupation among many Christian people with the preservation of certain nations, even our own. And in a strange way, they are attempting to equalize America uh, with the church or the church with God's plans. Nations come and go, and God's work goes on. And no nation is really significant when it's set against the backdrop of God's eternity. When God sets about to weigh out human history, the nations are not the issue. When God pours out the flood of the flow as redemptive plan, one drop, speaking of, and he's going back and he's quoting from Isaiah uh, 40, 15, that says, behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket. One drop is inconsequential. The nations are drops, they're dust. Back into Isaiah 40, verse 7 and 8, he compares them to the grass that withers and fades. God rules history, and all the nations may come and nations may go, even our own. God's redemptive plan, as unfolded through people, will go according to his schedule. And the people of God go through the rise and fall of nations they transcend. That's the great hope for us. We see that in Daniel. Babylon has fallen. The head of gold is crushed. The time of the Gentiles has moved to phase two. But Daniel is right where God wants him. And God is unencumbered by the decision of men. When you think about the fact that Babylon has fallen, it's really amazing. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had a habit of putting his name on every brick on every building. All I could think of is Nebuchadnezzar Tower, Nebuchadnezzar Casino. That's what I kept thinking of as I was writing some of this. In fact, one writer says that we have literally found uncounted thousands of bricks with Nebuchadnezzar's name on them trying to build a lasting empire. One brick, which is now in the British Museum, has the image and name of Nebuchadnezzar and his dog's footprint over both of them. So he... the temporariness of the things we see around us, especially as things, and that's what I'm struck as, as I look at it, these things that look 
as though they would be permanent. Certainly that was the Babylonian Empire. But we saw last week, as we looked at Daniel chapter 5, there's this incident where Belshazzar is throwing a party. He has a thousand of his noblemen there. We said it's a wild party. And uh, I, I draw attention to verse 4 of chapter 5. They praise the God of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And I made the observation last week, as messed up as I used to get, I never toasted the, the God of, of wood. It never occurred to me. Uh, but this was a wild party to which they brought their wives and their girlfriends. And in the middle of this party, there's a hand. We said that there's a room. There are a room, if I remember the dimensions, like 55 feet 60 feet by 170 feet, so not unlike this, with a little area carved out. We said maybe where the screen would be, and Belshazzar would preside over this. And in the middle of this, there's a hand that appears on the opposite wall, and it writes on the wall, and this throws terror. In fact, we saw verse 6, the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and he wondered what this was, and none of his noblemen could tell him. So finally, Daniel arrives, and Daniel said, I'll tell you exactly what it means. And we saw it. This is where we left off last week, chapter 5, verse 25. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Par said, this is the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on scales and found deficient. So you've been measured. And you need to know this is over, and it's over soon. Belshazzar then gave the orders to clothe Daniel in purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That was the promise that Belshazzar made to anyone who could interpret uh, what the words on that wall meant. And then that night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain, and Darius, uh, the Medes, received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Chapter 6, verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that would be in charge of the whole kingdom. So there's a, there's a new ruler, his name is Darius. And he comes in and he's putting together, and this is the terms that we would use, he's putting together a new uh, org chart. And he's divided the kingdom into a 120 areas where there would be individuals who would oversee them. And then over these 120, verse two, he had three commissioners, Daniel's one of them, that these satraps might be accountable to them that the king might not suffer loss. So he's a new king. He comes into a hostile environment. He wants to make sure that all the revenue and all the goods and all of the, all of the value that is due him is coming his way. So he puts into a new position, a new structure. He divides the kingdom in 120 areas and then puts three guys over each of those. Presumption would always be that he would divide them equally, 40s. Don't know that for sure, but then he would take uh, three guys. One of them is Daniel, and the king tells us his motive. His motive is to preserve all that's due him, and I couldn't help but just kind of look at this and say, isn't this amazing? The king is new in town, and within a short period of time, one of his top three go-to guys is Daniel. The study has been the study of faithful. If you go back with me to Genesis chapter 39, we saw the same thing take place in the life of Joseph. Remember, Joseph is taken into Egypt and, and under the care of Potiphar. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord is with Joseph. Joseph became su uh, successful, and his master saw the Lord was with Joseph. There was something in his life, Joseph's life, that, that, that Potiphar saw, that when then Joseph is put into the dungeon, the prison, 
and the, the chief jailer sees it. And we made the application then, and, and it's a fitting application for what we see here in Daniel's life, is that when I begin to live a life that models what God would have me do and believe and think and act, that the people around us should see us. And that in the marketplace, your Christian faith is not a liability, but an asset. That on the first day of school, you can ask the questions, did the students or the teachers see something different about you? Or maybe you're a teacher, did the kids see something different about you? That you care when you're a new person on the job or a new boss. And the king's motive here is, is purely financial. It's per, purely self-preservation. And he looks around at the kingdom, and it has to be, because he doesn't certainly have time to, to interview all of these people, it has to be by reputation and, 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 and again, probably by personal contact, that he sees something significant in, in Daniel's life. And, and he looks at him, verse 3, and then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners of the satrap. Now he's on the job because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. There, were, there was something about him that was above and beyond. He was not just a man who was a man uh, who worshipped the one true God, but that translated that he was a, a man of intelligence. Uh, he was a man who was gifted. Uh, he was a, a man who could lead. He was a man, and, and I would say, who was commendable. People would follow. He was respected. Here is a, a comment of one individual, one, one gentleman commenting on this section. He said, God put him right where he wanted him. God allowed Darius to recognize the capability of Daniel and to put him in a strategic position of influence. Let, let me say it again. Our faith in the marketplace is not a liability. It's an asset. Uh, what God has done in our lives and the gifts that he gives us. And in this case, it's the power. They're going to look, and that's what they're looking for. Look at, at, at verse 4. The commissioners and the satrap began trying to find grounds of which of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government affairs, but they could find no grounds of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. No negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So these guys, it's very similar to what we saw back in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Maybe those, remember those guys were appointed positions of authority and all of a sudden the men of Babylon came against them and, and they began to accuse them. Now the commissioners, the satraps, are trying to find something in Daniel that's a flaw. And they go to what I would consider the three Gs, maybe girls, gold, glory, money, sex, power, and they said there's none of that there, that Daniel doesn't commit in this case, he, he's not guilty of commission or omission of actions. In other words, he's doing everything he should, and he's not doing things that he shouldn't be, and they conclude if Daniel has a weakness, his weakness is God. That's the flaw that he has. And they set out to trap him. It's interesting, uh, years ago there was a man running for president and there were some accusations about him and maybe womanizing, and he challenged the press to follow him. They did. Twelve hours later, they caught him on a boat called Monkey Business, which is ironic, uh, and, and he couldn't withstand the scrutiny. And, and Daniel is being scrutinized by everyone in every way, and they said, when it's all said and done, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find one flaw. 
verse 5. We will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. They said, here's Daniel's weak point. Daniel's weak point is that if God says do it, he does it. If God says avoid it, he avoids it. And he's absolutely predictable. We can count on this. There's, There's no exception to it. And then all of the commentators jump all over, as you would expect, and say, wouldn't you love to have that said about you? Is this what we can count on him? This is what we see in her. Not that there are things that they would do they shouldn't do, but when it comes to God, there's no flexibility there. If God says it, that really settles it. That that we're not subject to maybe the cultural changes we see around us, to people's opinions. That that is not, by the way, what I hear. I hear, and and again, this can be an excuse, but... I have uh, studies that I do during the week, and there's a couple in there that started a a business four or five years ago and decided, and I thought it was semi-foolish at the time, uh, to hire only Christians with the idea that they would create this Christian environment and, uh, and they would come back and they would share with you just the utter disappointment they've had. We don't always have the Daniel experience with people. Should, but we don't. We have a lot of people who... I find where their Christianity on their sleeves when they're applying for jobs or trying to connect or, or, or somehow use that faith as if to open a door. But then when you get them in, you realize that that faith is more perhaps cultural than it is transformational. That all of a sudden, there are those values that ought to be present in our life and they aren't. And these guys look at it and they see and they say, there's, a, there's something about Daniel where his God and his faith and his work all connect. We talk about it a lot. That our relationship with Christ is, is, is indeed a very personal issue, but it's not a private issue. I, uh, I did something this week. I turned on TV to discover how bad Chick-fil-A was. I didn't realize that until this week. And I saw the mayor of Chicago, who I thought was interesting, who last week I saw kind of asking the gangbangers to take their gun battles back to the alley because they were shooting kids and he said Chick-fil-A does not share our values and I thought well I don't know what Chick-fil-A values are so I went on the Chick-fil-A website here's what I found Chick-fil-A is a family-owned family-led company serving communities in which it operates from the day Truett Cathy started the company he began applying biblical principles to managing his business for example we, we believe that closing on Sundays and operating debt-free and devoting a percentage of our profit back to the community that we, we makes us stronger, a stronger company and a stronger family. And I thought, how, how could you be opposed to that? I understand, I guess, the issue. But it's, it's interesting as you speak to some issue in terms of, of, of... And these guys at Chick-fil-A got painted like they were radicals. You've had 31 states deal with same-sex marriage, and every state but Arizona, every state but Arizona said, no, we, we don't want that. We want traditional values. It's not a far, to me anyway, a far-right position. It's the same, presi- same position the president had until 10 or 11 weeks ago. It's not a, a radical position. And, and I imagine you could look at Chick-fil-A and go, I'm not sure why they're interjecting in this, and I'm not sure how they got pulled into the discussion. But, but to say this is, this is what our faith teaches us, and then to go to the marketplace, and then in this case, to have the government come in, both in Boston and Chicago, and begin to deal with this, there's a place for that. 
there's a place for us to understand that they're values and we need to take a stand for those when it's appropriate. And as we do, you need to understand there's often a cost that's associated with it. And that's particularly true in some of the issues, the social issues that, that we deal with. And I can tell you as we deal with them from the front or as we make comments about them, that they're just issues that God has settled. And, and the minute we begin to deal with them, all of a sudden, you're painted as something less than a person who, who is kind and gentle and is that the Christian thing to do. And I, and I was struck by, I just, I was struck by the language of it. I was struck when I heard Chicago mayor say, we don't share Chick-fil-A values, that I, I was stunned to see what are those values. And as I say, operating debt-free might not be a bad idea for the city of Chicago, I'm not sure, <laughs> or government in general. Uh, Daniel takes this stand apparently just in the way he does business. At this point, at this point, we're going by reputation, I assume based on interaction with him. These commissioners and the satraps came together by agreement in verse 6 and to the king, and, and they want to trap Daniel. They want to get rid of him. So they say, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the officials and the government have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and a force and injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man besides you, so we're elevating the king here a bit, for 30 days will be cast in the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Their law was that once a law was in place, there was no changing, there was no amending. So we want you to pass this law, and the whole intent here now is to get Daniel, is to trap Daniel. They think they've, they think they've, they've trapped him, and they come to the king. That's pretty appealing, I would think, when your people come to you and say, we don't want people praying to a god or a man other, other than you. They appeal to his pride, and Darius signed the document, and it's an injunction. And when Daniel knew the document would be signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had the windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying, giving thanks before God. To me, this is a key phrase here, just as he had done previously. So in their house, there was frequently kind of an upper room or on the roof, there might be a room that might be added, wouldn't be glass and windows, there might be a lattice there, allow air to pass through. It would be a place where they would pray regularly, uh, and, and they would be seen invisible from there. And, and, and those were the things that struck me, is, is not only what Daniel did, it's what Daniel didn't do. Daniel didn't call CNN and Fox and, and say, I want you to come here and watch this protest. Daniel simply did what Daniel had always done. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, we need more Daniels. We need more people who are willing to bring their awareness of God and his laws off the reservation, who are willing to open their windows and honor him before a watching world. To, to, to understand that, that people are watching you is, is a big part of this. And I always try to tell our kids that. I try to tell the people of Priority Living, when you go into your office and you invite people to a noonday study and they say, what is it? And ultimately it's a Bible study. Once people hear that of you, they're going to look at you with a new level of scrutiny. And they're going to hold you to a standard, in all likelihood, higher than the standard you have for yourself. 
if you're a boss running a company and you've got that, that Bible there and, and you appropriately talk about your faith, you need to understand you're going to be held to, to a criteria that accompanies that. Daniel is in this process where they say no praying. And, and da- Daniel, as I said, does not make a big deal of this. He simply does. Key part of verse 10. He does what he's always done before. He doesn't go, I'm 90. I could use a 30-day sabbatical from prayer. Uh, he doesn't say, not a big deal. I'll just hold off. There's that, that conflict in there, and we get it often in terms of questions about civil disobedience and authority. And the general rule of thumb is if the government asks you to do something, commands you to do something God forbids or forbids you to do something God commands, those would be the exceptions. We'd see them in Exodus 1, Acts chapter 4, here in Daniel chapter 6. And Daniel's saying, listen, I can't do this. I have my prescription to pray to the one true God, and I'm going to do it. And in, in Daniel's mind, I assume, in about the, the least offensive way possible, I'm going to do what I've always done. These men came by uh, agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before God. Verse 12, then they approached and spoke before the king about his injunction. And they say, let me remind you, king, did we get this straight? Did you sign the injunction that any, any person who makes petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days will be cast in the lion's den? And the king replied and said, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it may not be revoked. That's exactly what we did. That's exactly accurate, and there's no way I can amend it. And they said, well, we got a problem here in verse 13. And our problem is, is really simple. His name is Daniel. Daniel, who was one of the exiles of Judah, you see again the prejudice that's there, who who is one of the exiles of Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard the statement, he was greatly distressed and set his mind not on punishing Daniel, but on delivering Daniel. Even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. And, he, and now, he's got, now he's got the best and the brightest. He has our loopholes anywhere. Somebody asked uh, W.C. Fields once, do you read the Bible? And his answer was, only for loopholes. And, and that's what Darius is looking for. Darius is looking for a loophole. Is there an exception? Is there something we can do to change this? And these men came by agreement to the king, verse 15, and they said, recognize, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the kings established can be changed. You're stuck. There's nothing you can do. And the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke to Daniel. Look at verse 16. The king said, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Where did he get that? He couldn't have known Daniel for very long. Like I said, by reputation, probably by this encounter. And he heard of the, the one true God. I, I love two aspects of this. One, and you have to ask it by application, would the people around you see that living God in you and draw that same conclusion? One, two, the God that Daniel served is the God that you serve and I serve, and he delivers us too that God has given us everything we need pertaining to to life and death. And the fullness of life itself is found in him. And so the application that's kind of easy and teed up 
is that as God puts us and we find ourselves in those situations that look perilous like Daniel's, that God is there to deliver. doesn't always necessarily mean he's going to get me out, but he's there to strengthen me at moments when I'm not sure I could handle another moment, another, another instance, an, another pressure, whether I heard Neil pray for relations, finance, personal, physical, whatever it might be. Your God is a great God. He's a God who delivers. And Daniel is now put in the lion's den. A stone is brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his signet ring and the signet ring of his nobles so that nothing would be charged, changed in regards to Daniel. So most people believe this is a kind of a, a hollowed-out cave-type area with an entrance divided into two areas. They would separate the lions, uh, keep one side on it where they might clean it or feed it, and there was an opening at the top. Daniel's put in the midst of this. Obviously, this is a, a form of, of capital punishment, and the signet ring now binds it and says that if anybody breaks this seal or tampers with this, they'll face the, the full wrath of the king and of the nation. And now the, the night falls, and the king goes off to the palace, and he spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled him. Here, here is the king who is in great angst for Daniel. No television, no Olympics, um, no food. Then the king rose at, at dawn, verse 19, at the break of day, and he in haste went to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. And the king said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the, dan from the lions? And Daniel cries back, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions, and they haven't harmed me inasmuch as I was innocent before him and also toward you. O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken from the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he trusted God. Very similar to what we saw when we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in, in chapter 3, and they were put in the fire. Almost the same scenario where, where they said, King, we won't bow down before you. Our God is able to save us and deliver it, but even if he doesn't. It's the authority of God. And Daniel seems to connect here in verse 23, faith and trust that he had in God and God's delivering him. What, what I love, I, we have been up in Flagstaff and the house that we're in, uh, the cable that we have, we have like 12 religious stations. And it's interesting to get that much bad theology all at once. It's always <laughs> encouraging. And it's a constant flow of God wants you healthy, God wants you wealthy, God's concerned about prosperity. Uh, one of the authors writes this, now you know, and I want you to know something, it always, always happened the way it does with Daniel. Isaiah believed God too, but he was sawn in half. Paul believed God too, and he was, laid his head on a block and an axe flashed in the sun and severed it from his body. Peter believed in God and he got crucified upside down. Believing in God doesn't mean the lions aren't going to eat you. There have been martyrs throughout history of God's dealing with men that have believed God and they've died. The issue is that we accept God's will. 
If it is to live, it's to live, it's to die, it's to die. In either case, we're never defeated. In fact, if Daniel had been eaten by the lions, he would have been in the presence of God, right? James Montgomery Boyce, same idea. God is calling us to win by living. I'm sorry, God is calling some of us to win by living, others called to win by dying. But in life or death, God rules, and we are called to serve him. Well, will we do it? The world needs those who know God and who will live for his righteousness even when the entire culture ferociously turns against them. And that's the lesson. Now, one of the objections I always have uh, as we teach Daniel is, is in the lion's den, in the fire, these guys get, get out. And it bugs me in the, in the sense that we easily, humanly, make that leap that because Daniel trusted, if we trust, we'll get out of the equivalent of those lion's den. And it doesn't always work that way, does it? God puts us in the fire. God puts us in the lion's den. God puts us in those places where perhaps we least want to be, and he does it for his good, for our good, his glory, for our own individual building up, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, that as I see God work, as I see God stretch me, that his faithfulness becomes more and more real to me, Think, think of the stories that Daniel and the others have. Even to pass, here we, are, here we are, whatever that is, 2,500 years later, looking at the life of Daniel and looking at the faithfulness of God. So I, I'd encourage you to, to stand and go, wow, as you look at Daniel, but make sure you understand that what makes Daniel special is the same power and spirit that's available in your life. Yet there's nothing extraordinary in and of Daniel, in and of himself. He's a man of incredible integrity, but he's empowered by that same spirit that you have. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus says. And then right after it, he said, and I'll send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that comes, according to Philippians chapter 2, and gives you the desire and the will to do the things that God would have you do. To live in a way that would bring honor and glory to him. That would cause us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the world gets more and more hostile. I became a Christian in March of 1980, and the cries were deep then that the country was in trouble and the world was coming to an end, and there was a lot of hostility. And it seems to me that it's ramped up more and more and more. It seems to me that the, the one group of people that seem to be fair game, that you can kind of say anything you want about and against, are born-again evangelical Christians. It feels like that. As you begin to live out your faith, as, as you begin to, to say, here's what God says about the world, about relationships. Here's what God says about marriage. Here's what God says about sexuality. Here's what God says. And here's what God says in his word. Daniel's delivered from this. There's all sorts. If you want to have some fun, Read the, the liberal commentators on this because they come up with all sorts of explanations of why this didn't happen, of why Daniel wasn't eaten, that the lions had been fed. Part of what Darius did was feed the lions so when they saw it, they weren't hungry. Uh, there were that, that Daniel was somehow able to hide in a certain area of the cave. Well, whatever the situation was, these lions got over this very, very, very quickly. Uh, Daniel pronounces and says in verse 22, an angel uh, shut the mouths of the lions. 
Verse 23, the king was very pleased and gave an order so Daniel be taken from the den. So Daniel was taken from the den. No injury was found in him. Verse 24, the king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den. They had not reached the bottom before these full lions had overpowered them and crushed all their bones. The, the law of the Medes and the Persians had some interesting injunctions, and one of them we've looked at already, and that was once the law was issued, it couldn't be revoked. There was another uh, uh, segment of the law that said, on account of the guilt of one man, all his kindred, meaning family, must perish. And that's what you saw play itself out in verse 26. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nation, men of every language who are living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom is one which is not destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He, and I underline these, you might too, delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. And he also delivered Daniel from the power of the lion's den so that Daniel enjoys success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Verse 27, he delivers and rescues and works signs and wonders and miracles. He, he is the God who works in your life and in mine today. Delivering and rescuing, let's start with this. You and me. Salvation, deliverance from the sin, the consequence of our sin and the penalty of our sin and allows us to live a life that's in communion with the one true God. Struck by it even as we began to pray today, each person that's prayed has started with that word, Father. That there's a relationship with here. It never occur to, to those ancient Jews that there would be that intimate relationship. This God who spoke the world into existence and who holds it together, you can call him Father. You have a, a unique and a special relationship with him. And that God who delivered Daniel and rescued Daniel is the same God who today delivers and rescues us. I, I took it and made a, a long list of things that I see in the life of Daniel. And I keep going back to Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 where Daniel made up his mind, where Daniel resolved, where Daniel determined. That we see in Daniel a consistent life from start to finish, a life of virtue, a life of integrity, a life that wasn't for sale, that, that Daniel was both envied by many and hated by some. He was condemned and commended all at the same time. Daniel's faith did not make him a bad citizen, but one of the best of those in the entire kingdom. Same thing true as we look in our own life. Daniel served faithfully, there's a silence in Daniel as the satraps come and they come to the king. There's no record here of Daniel recording any sort of protest or any sort of objection. There is a, a silence where he doesn't defend himself and he trusts God to handle that. His faith is strengthened and ultimately God receives the glory and God is the one who avenges him. I uh, keep coming back to Daniel's age and maybe that's because I feel like I'm getting a little bit older in, in 1850, 1850 to 1900, life expectancy in the country was about age 51. Today, it's about age 75. 
and they say that number is increasing. If you are a woman today who is in reasonably good health, if you do not get cancer, your life expectancy is 94. How does that make you feel, ladies? I look at Daniel, and I go, here, here, here's Daniel at 85 or 90. I look at us, and I say, what has God done? God's essentially given us a second adulthood in these last 1,000 years. God, God's given us, uh, or last 100 years, God's given us a second adulthood from 51 to 75 and, and called on us to live in a way. I just meant some, some really practical application here is that you have an opportunity to, to be a leader. I think it's important. I, I used to talk to the girls. I remember pushing them around in the stroller when I'm not sure they understood English, talking to them about being a leader and talking to them about what it, what it meant. It doesn't mean that you have a title. It means that in your peer group, people are watching you. And you have an opportunity to stand out, to be distinct, to be different. And there is a commodity that we see in Daniel in our life that I think has developed through repetition, discipline, faithfulness, the idea of integrity, there's the predictability. Predictability in a relationship, trying to figure out what, makes, what just makes a human relationship work. How, how difficult is it, gentlemen, if you're coming home and each day you come home and you're not sure what you're going to find at home? What's the attitude at home? Or ladies, your husband's coming home and you're not sure exactly who's, I don't know who's going to walk in the door tonight. The predictability that you have with Daniel. And the predictability is if God says it, he does it. If God says don't, he doesn't. The, the flaw that Daniel has is not women or money or power. His flaw is God. That's what we can stand on. That there's that opportunity to practice all around you every day your priorities. And, and, and I, I, again, I, I wrote the sentence that we've used throughout this study that we should not be surprised when God intervenes and delivers us, but we shouldn't be disappointed if he doesn't. And what Daniel is called to do, or at least I, I'm going to use the phrase, is, is Daniel is called to infect his world, not necessarily the world. That God's placed you strategically wherever you are, in that classroom, at work, whatever it might be, for a reason. He's given you a history. He's given you a relationship. He's given you, if you will, marching orders, and then he's given you the, the power to carry them out. And there should be, in the people around you, a sense of awe as they see you live. And we should be hearing things like, I don't know how you handle that. I, I, I don't know how you can endure all that. And you have the, you have the privilege to, to really say what Darius says, and it's the one true God. It's your God whom you constantly serve who delivers you. Your God whom you constantly serve who rescues you. He is a great and a holy and a mighty God. And we look at the, the great truths of the New Testament as we study the doctrine of his faithfulness, of the strength of the spirit. We look at that and then so often we see the application as we did here in the life of Daniel and the life of Joseph is that God is a faithful God. God is to be trusted. The God in whom you've put your faith and trust, and you're really counting on him for salvation, and salvation way more than just heaven, but the ability to operate, live, navigate here in this world. That God is faithful. He will not disappoint you. He 
He calls on you into a, a personal relationship with him that is indeed personal but not private and asks you to allow it to affect your whole life as you develop a, a mind of Christ and an attitude in there so that everything around you looks different. How does it look? Well, there is a not an earthly, demonic thought and wisdom like we see in James chapter 3, but there is this heavenly wisdom from above that's driven not by you caring about your agenda, but by God's agenda. I was reading the, the other day uh, in the book of Philippians, as Paul says, I'm getting ready to send somebody to you. And I got nobody like him. His name is Timothy. And then he says, what separates Timothy from everyone else is he really cares about something other than himself. He says, I'm sending you a new pastor. And, and I, I thought about that. I was just talking to somebody who's getting a new pastor in their church. I said, what's he like? And they talked about his ability to preach and lead and all that goes with it. Paul says, I'm going to send you one. He's the only one I got like me. He doesn't mention preaching or teaching or leading. He says he really cares about you. He really cares about your agenda for your life as God blesses you. So to, as we look at these six weeks in Daniel, four weeks in Joseph, we're struck again and again by faithful. The, in a sense, the faithfulness of Joseph, faithfulness of Daniel that the people around him can see, but the faithfulness of God, that's the strength. You, you, you look and you go, I'm not sure I can take another day. You don't have to. It's God who's going to give you that strength that allow you to, to do things beyond anything you could ever imagine. Many of us in the room know that relationship because we've come to Christ in repentance and faith, and we found that that deliverance and that salvation in the person of Christ through his act on the cross where he died so that we could have eternal life, something that we celebrate every Sunday here at Redemption Church. So let me pray. I think Neil's going to come and lead us in our time of communion here this morning. Father, thank you that you are a God who delivers your people.